We'll be looking at a couple of verses here in Romans chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. Romans 3, 24 and 25. As you surely remember by now, the the offer of salvation to you and to anybody that you would share the gospel with, the offer of salvation that you share and or the one that you hold to in your own heart is is held up against the wrath of God. And the book of Romans is, is teaching us this, wrath and salvation being at opposite ends of, of the spectrum. And at chapter 3, Justification is mentioned to us. Justification is is mentioned for the first time in this gospel. So as we look at verse uh, 24, we see how how Paul brings us into the message. We have to back up a little bit to see the whole uh, sentence. I think we can pick it up at 23 and, and, and make enough sense. It says, For all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. Jews and Gentiles have sinned. That's the all. Okay? All have sinned. All of them mean salvation. All have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And uh, if you have a look for a moment or two at, at this phrase here, we will see that sola fide is in here, faith alone. We will see that solus Christus is in here, Christ alone. And we will see sola fide. Sola fide, sola Christus, and um, sola gratia. All three of those are in these two verses, which are just part of a sentence. Justified freely by His grace. Justification by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ. Whom God set forth as a propitiation. We won't be looking at that word too, too much yet today. Propitiation by His blood through faith. The work of justification, the work and the act of justification, it is the greatest act of all time. It really is the most remarkable, greatest thing of all time. When I was pondering on even this sentence here, I almost called it a miracle, the greatest miracle of all time. And yet, I guess in some ways it is a miracle, but all of God's nature, everything God does, is both supernatural and natural, isn't it? God God can only act the way God acts. And and when God acts supernaturally, it's not supernatural to him. It's just what he does by his nature, right? It's it's what God does. It's supernatural to us. God sustains the world. The the trees and the light and the the streams and and material things and his work and that, you semi-understand. You sort of get this... And he also sustains the world that you don't understand. He sustains and and he is the reason for everything you do not understand. The complex and the simple. And he does whatever he wants, whenever he wants. For God to justify sinners, his action had to be legal. Or we could say it had to be just. For God to justify sinners, it had to be legal because it is his nature to be just. He, he cannot act not right. Everything he does is right. And so for God to justify sinners, it had to be right. It had to be legal. He is truly bound by his nature to justice cannot act unjustly. But in order to justify sinners, his work had to be able to overlook offense. He had to be able to overlook offense. 
it had to be in his being and it must be a part of his being to face a man who blasphemes him, to face a man who reviles him, to face a man who avoids him, blaspheming, reviling, avoiding, and then add to the list in your own mind. Think of the ways men are offensive to him. It has to be in his nature to view this person, to view you as a blasphemer or an idolater and to pity. It has to be part of his nature to view that and to pity and to have compassion and love along with his natural requirement of justice. Justification requires these things. If God were perfectly just with no compassion for sinners, with no compassion for those who blaspheme him, with no care, then they would all justly be destroyed and forever and rightly condemned. That would be a right act for him to act that way. So you have to understand that justification is a it is an unprecedented work in the universe in terms of what it is in God's nature and what it is accomplished for you and I. His work is generous and gracious and friendly in justification to those who despise and reject him. It is an uncanny combination of things So God's testimony to men, and I'm using this word testimony like a witness in a courtroom. God's testimony to men of their status before him is what we read in the first two or so chapters of Romans. In other words, the court has adjourned and the court is hearing testimony from the chief witness against men. And it is God's witness against men. And what is God's witness Against them, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the testimony in the court. Man's status before him is just plainly and and clearly metered out and, and explained out to us in this. And we keep working on this subject of justification because it seems to me that this generation is so accustomed to, addicted to defining God in terms of his love for you and his love for mankind. We're so addicted to that that we cannot picture wrath. We cannot picture justice. We don't really seem to grasp in our generation, and I don't know what generations ever did, we, we, we think that God is all about love and acceptance. And men don't tremble at the thought of justice. We don't, we don't marvel at justification. It is my hope that sometime in the next days of preaching through Romans, your understanding of justification would, would really deepen. You're, you and I need to understand that the phenomenal work that has taken place in justifying any sinner and making them right and favored before God. We normally define justification just as if I had not sinned. We, we've said that numerous times. And, and it's not wrong. It, that's, that's not a twisting of, of truth, but it's shallow. Rendering justification to be just as if I had not sinned is shallow. It misses much of the depth of what is involved in understanding justification. You, you and I are born with defects that will always break God's laws. And the justice of God against law-breaking must and will always equal death. The wage of sin is death. 
And you possess in your nature the unchangeable nature to always do that that would require your death eternally. This is a stunning thing. You know, in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, when the Lord Jesus tells a story of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man died and opened his eyes. And where was he? How long? Do you, do you realize that the, the concepts of eternal life and hell exist in the confine of eternity? When the rich man died and opened his eyes, he was in hell. Where's the door out? There is none. When you wake up in hell, you're in hell. And, 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 and it's not being put in the corner in kindergarten. It's not being sent to bed without your dinner. Hell. He opened his eyes in hell. And one of the stunning things in this story is if the day before we asked him, where are you going to open your eyes when you die? What would he say? He would say heaven. He was a man of God. He was a Jew. He was a keeper of the law. And yet, when he died, he had no justification. He had no... He had no words to make his case before God. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. 1, 2, 1. I'm going to read to you verses 2 to 10. Men are in, in two categories on planet Earth. And, and, and the rich man learned something when he opened his eyes in hell that men need to know while they live. Men need to know and understand this while they live. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly. And the love of every one of you abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and who give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes in that day to be glorified in His saints and be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. The defect that is in men that will always break God's laws requires the just rendering of the wrath of God. The end of the age comes with the wrath of God. We, we read about that in this letter to the Thessalonians. God's vengeance is not mean-spirited. He's not mean. It's just. And it is justice. It's the rendering of His justice. It would be unjust to let the rebellious have 
the same thing as those who listen to him. It would be unjust for him to treat them the same. It's unjust to allow evil to go without judgment. So God's punishments are good. And all who desire peace and forgiveness in life, they must seek to understand truth. How crucial it is that you would learn to plea with people and even your own heart. Plea with your own heart. May I be a lover of truth. May the lost be a lover of truth. We must seek to understand truth, the truth that God has given, so that men would avoid wrath and find justification. There is an awful defect in men. Because men believe, most men believe, they can be godly enough. Every unsaved person you know believes they will be godly enough. They will open their eyes and they will find a God there who says they were godly enough. They were good enough. They believe justification is fairly simple and favorable to them. But Paul, under the Spirit, he reveals the root of ungodliness. You guys all remember this. You know this. He reveals the root of ungodliness with man's conceptions of God. The root of ungodliness is what men in their hearts feel and think about God and his godness and his glory. And because they are muddy in their thinking, this is a chain reaction. As men perceive God with muddy eyes and muddy minds and self-loving hearts, as they perceive Him in this way, they see their own defects and their own shortcomings, and that's how we call them, and even accidents. It was an accident. My, my slip of the tongue was an accident. Cheating on my wife was an accident. My stealing was a boo-boo. Men see these defects in themselves that way because their view of the eternal Holy One is muddy. They don't see and understand God with clear eyes and clear hearts. And so this has an effect on men where men define Sin and God's response to sin according to their own reason, according to their own truth. They love their own explanation of their defects and they love their own version of the God who will look on those shallow defects and give them forgiveness and invite them into his heaven. Men are born with this defect and they cannot escape it. Man's own powers of reason, man's own computation of of his sin and who God is results in their justification when they close their eyes and then open them in that place of glory that they hope for. And yet in reality, they find when they open their eyes, they've been sent to hell. Think about for a minute the testimony of those who have been born again are like Paul's. Paul says in Romans 7.24, you don't have to turn too many pages in Romans, look at Romans 7.24. What does he say? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? When a man gets the gospel, when a man gets the holiness of God, his sins aren't accidents. His disqualifications of eternal life aren't minor problems. Paul says, what a wretch, this wretched man that I am. The gospel exposes you 
you should understand first and foremost that the gospel exposes you as a sinner. Did the gospel expose you to your sin as the gospel drew you to hope in Christ? Is that what the gospel is to you? Is that how you remember your conversion? Is that how you have come to Christ? A poor, hopeless, untamable sinner? Have you been ever able to see yourself this way? The gospel must strip you of self-hope. The gospel must strip you of your self-praise. There is no self-hope. There is no self-praise. There is no virtue in men by where you're going to present yourself to the Savior. None. Listen to what Isaiah said. Isaiah 6, 5. When men, even the greatest men that you can recall out of the Bible, when men come face to face with their creator, they say something like what Isaiah says. So I said, woe is me, for I am undone. He's viewing the holiness of God. He's viewing a a scene in the throne room of God and he said, Woe is me, for I am undone because I'm a man of unclean lips. Is your exposure to the holiness of God, does it convict you of your foul mouth? Of your loose tongue? Is your knowledge of yourself knowledge of a wretch with an unclean mouth? He says, I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king. One glimpse with his eyes. When he saw what he saw, when he saw what there is to see, what was the response in his heart? Woe is me. Woe is me. Right gospel hearing and right gospel seeing is first a picture of yourself as a wretch. It must expose this of you. And if if you are not a wretch, if you don't see the, the, the lowness of your low, the hopelessness of your hopelessness, then you don't understand the gospel. You have yet to understand why you even need justification. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God for a sinner. The Lord Jesus came to save sinners. How do we learn to see ourselves as sinners? You see, when men appear before God, when they open their eyes at that last day, then they will stand before Him with clothes, either clothes of their own righteousness or clothes of His righteousness. These are the two choices men have of what they will wear when they open their eyes on the last day. And the clothes that they wear then, this outfit that men wear, the clothes or the robes, will be the evidence. The clothes they're wearing will be the evidence of what they believe God approves and what brings them to Him with approval. In other words, you're getting dressed right now for something that may happen tonight in your sleep, may happen next year. You will die and you will open your eyes. What are you going to be wearing when you get there? Men are dressing themselves right now for that day when they open their eyes and meet him. What are they wearing? What are you wearing? What are you wearing? You're wearing the righteousness of your own making? or you are wearing the righteousness that God requires. We need to more deeply appreciate the true beauty and dignity of godliness, the true beauty and dignity, the thing that God looks at with with approval when that day comes, when God sees what must be seen for men to enter into eternal life is beautiful and full of a special kind of dignity. Now, you and I know the words for sins. We've gone over these words of the sins in the book of Romans. Godless, unrighteous, idolater, coveter, pervert, sensual, greedy, jealous. 
gossip, vengeful, violent, selfish, fornicator. And somehow, somehow it, it seems to be in our nature that men ignore these blemishes found in ourselves. When we find fornication in ourselves, when we find greed in ourselves, when we find gossip in ourselves, it doesn't look that bad on us. We're able to dress it up. We're able to make it look better. And so somehow in our own mind, it's not disqualifying. Men usually ignore these blemishes And each little defect is covered and made presentable by right things and by his religion, by his duties. And so you can see how men who do not know Christ savingly, men who do not know this, will will find these defects in their lives, their lies, their gossips, their, their greeds. They will find these things and they will somehow clean them up in such a way that in their own minds it works. In their own minds it's presentable, it's acceptable. When the gospel says, know your sin, when the gospel says, seek God's righteousness, serve the Lord, they mostly are able to ignore it. They, they find that that doesn't apply, that doesn't speak to them. Well, each day they pile up evidence against themselves that they are truly, truly wicked and guilty. So what we want to do, you guys know these words. We've talked about the words. What we're going to do now is what the Lord did in his ministry. I want you to turn to Matthew 21 with me. And what we're going to see as we read this is these these issues of particular sins in men's lives... That, that are pointed out in Romans 1, 2, and 3 are also taught to men in a slightly different way in some of the parables of Jesus. I want you to listen to how the Lord Jesus confronts this same problem in, in a different manner. As he teaches men that the way you are living is how you are making your clothes. The way you are living is how you are preparing to meet me when you die. You're going to see that. You're going to see this fleshed out as I work through this parable. Men are making themselves clothes in which they will present themselves to God at the end of their days. The Lord Jesus is telling that story here. I'm going to start in chapter 21, verse 23. And we're going to read a lot of this scripture here together. So just hang in there, follow along with me. While teaching, he was confronted. By what authority are you doing these things? I will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. He says in response to them. The baptism of John, the Lord Jesus says, where was it from? And he said to them, I actually, I deleted a sentence here. Their answer, when when he asked them this, this question, the baptism of John, where was it from? Would they answer? They didn't, and they wouldn't answer. They were afraid. They said, hmm. If we say John's baptism was from heaven, then he's going to ask us why we didn't obey him. If we say John's baptism was of men, then everybody would think we're hypocrites and liars because we all know John was a prophet. So they said, Jesus, we don't know. They didn't want to interact with him on a basis of truth. So then Jesus says to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now go with me, um, same chapter to verse 28. There's a question of authority I want you to just make sure you take note of there in the section we just read. The authority of Jesus. 
Where does his authority come from? And they didn't actually answer the question, but we're on the same theme here. Next, uh, verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons. He came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, Likewise. He answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, The first. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. Do you see how the question is a question of authority again in this little section we read here? We're reading about authority. A man had two sons. And what does the man tell both sons? Go work in the field. What does the first son say? No, I won't do it. And then he's like, I need to do it. My father asked me to do it. I'll do it. I'm going to do it. It's a question of authority. He decides to obey his father, who is the authority. The second son, why does he say yes? Why does he say yes and then not go? He's a people pleaser. He can't deal with having conflict with his father. He can't bear the, the thought of saying no and his father's disappointment, but he cannot bring himself to do what his father wants. It's a question of authority. The Lord Jesus, in the first thing we read about, the first thing we read about was a question of authority. They said, by what authority are you doing these things, Jesus? And so then he tells them this story about, what do you guys really think about authority? If I told you that I was God, would you say yes to me? Which of these two sons would you be like if I told you that I was God? It's a question of his authority. There is a man who responds to authority in love. And he says no, and then he changes his mind. There is a man who responds saying yes, and yet he just cannot bring himself to do yes. He is averse to his father being an authority over him. There are two kinds of religious people being shown to us so far in this example of the Lord Jesus telling us about men. There are two kinds of men. And the main distinction he has made in them is what is their attitude toward the authority of God? What do they think about? How do they act toward the authority of God? He develops this more. And by the time we get to the end of Jesus telling the story, you're going to see very, very clearly how one of the sub-themes Jesus is teaching about what men are doing is, is they are making clothes for themselves. One response to authority is making clothes in a certain way, and another response to authority is making clothes in another way. Some men are making their own clothes and they reject authority. Some men are making the clothes God has asked them to make and they are accepting authority. These are two groups of people we're seeing here. So go back with me to Matthew 21 and verse 32. Matthew 21, verse 32. John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. So Jesus is working on the conscience again of these ones who are challenging his authority. He's telling them this story. He's working on their conscience. These men had heard and seen God's warning by John the Baptist. Right? John the Baptist said, repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Who actually did the repenting? Well, we we just read it, right? In verse 32. Who listened? Tax collectors, harlots, people who were not doing God's will, heard what the Father said and, and, and their hearts desired to do what the Father had asked them to do. Who actually was saying yes 
while John the Baptist was preaching, and in reality they would not do yes. Who was that? That was the Pharisees. The Pharisees could hear the preaching of John, and they were offended by it. They are like the very, very beginning of the story. Go to my field. Yes. I'm not going to go to the field. I'm not going to do what he says. I'm going to do what I want. We're, We're contrasting these two things alone all the way here. So here's another story that follows that begins at verse 33. Same theme, but we're at verse 33. Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard, set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower. He leased it to the vine dressers, went into a far country. Now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But the vine dressers saw the son. They said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the vine dressers? You see how we're looking at the very same theme again? We're looking at a people and their response to the one in authority. We're looking at the exact same story. The Lord Jesus is telling it in a different way. What do they think about their obligation to give back to the owner? What do they think about their need to be faithful to the one who has given them a charge? How are they responding to the one who is in authority? What kind of clothes are they making for themselves is the larger question at hand. Verse 40, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? They said to them, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. They can see it in the story. Can they see it in their own lives? They can, they can read the story. Can they read their life? Can they read their own ears and their own obedience to the preaching of John, which is where the story began? Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures? This stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. So the owner left his vineyard in the care of those who wanted the task and the profits. They rent it from him. They want the honors. They want the profits from it. But they did not want to give their portion back to the owner. That's what this is all about. They were to give their percent back to the owner. That's the deal a vine, uh, a, a vineyard leaser makes with the owner of the vineyard. And this is a flagrant disobeying of right. This is a flagrant disobedience of righteousness and a disobeying of authority. And the owner will render justice. The story ends with the owner will make it right. He cannot leave his fields in the care of the greedy and the selfish, and he will not do it. He will give it to those who honor his authority. He will give it to those who will honor his justice. As the Lord continues this explanation of, of an honorable response to authority, we are going to return to the subject of clothes. So men are busy doing their laboring. Men are busy living their lives. Just like you and I are busy laboring and living our lives. We're, we're doing what we are doing. We're doing what the people are doing who are listening to the apostles preaching. We're doing what is being done by gospel believers and by gospel unbelievers. People are doing the things that they're doing. And most, that is believers and unbelievers, believe that they're on their way to heaven's glory. And they believe that those glories and those privileges will eventually be theirs. That's what they're working for. 
But the Lord Jesus in this story is warning all men, you're not prepared to meet the God who is at the end of the story. You are not prepared for it. All men hear the warnings that God's justice is going to be perfectly just. Every sin, every wrongdoing, every shortcoming, every accident is brought out onto the table. And all men have heard many times that God judges the unfaithful with wrath. And yet they are consoled with their own picture of themselves. Men see themselves ready and they're comforted. And none of the warnings of the gospel move them to think that they don't know him. None of the preaching moves the hard hearts of the unbeliever. And so he anticipates favor and he anticipates approval. He anticipates reward. What is it that makes the hard-hearted so gospel-proof? What is it that makes men so deaf to the gospel? Pride? Obstinance? Laziness? Pick up the story in chapter 22, verse 8. There's a banquet in the making. There's a father preparing a banquet for the son. Obviously, we're speaking about the heavenly father, the triune God of heaven, and the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's being told in a kingdom manner. So then the king said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Now that's a picture of the Jews. Therefore, it says, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. When the king came in to see the guests, these were all people at the wedding banquet. There for the wedding banquet of the sun. It's where all men hope to go. All men are on their way to that banquet. They're on their way to God's favor. The king saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? He was speechless. He had no words. Or in other words, he had no justification. He had nothing to say. He was not wearing the right clothes. Now, I want this next part of this story to to work hard on your heart. I want you to take this home tonight. I want you to chew on this. Because what is the penalty for having the wrong clothes? I mean, you and I, if you and I go to a wedding dressed a little off, maybe it's a little bit embarrassing, but you can get over it by the next morning. Verse 13, the king said to the servants, bind him, hand and foot, take him away. Cast him in outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. And then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. There are at least two shocking things revealed in this last part of this long story. One of them is that the Pharisees went on plotting against Christ. The hard-hearted and believing will not even hear a sliver of this story. He will hear that and go on justifying his own life. He will hear that and go on making his own clothes. Pretty confident that when he opens his eyes at the last day, 
expects to see a favorable God welcoming him, not expecting to be in hell for the rest of eternity. But the Pharisees went on plotting against Christ, unmoved by this shocking picture of the man who finds himself at the wedding banquet of the Lamb with the wrong clothes. He had dressed himself for the son's wedding. He dressed himself. He prepared himself. This is the end of all that story is you get to the wedding in your own clothes. And he wasn't the least bit nervous until the king came and told him, where did you get these rags? Where did you get these filthy rags? These are not clothes for the wedding of the son. He had no idea that he had to go to the king to get the right clothes. He had no idea that he couldn't make them himself because he had been deaf all of his life. He had been blind all of his life to the holy, great perfection of the king, to the glorious purity of the king and the kingdom. He didn't even think to look for the king or for the king's steward in order to make sure he was properly respecting the dignity of the kingdom. He didn't even think twice about what respect or disrespect he had brought for the son because he wasn't there for the son and he wasn't there for the king. He was there for himself. He came in his own beauty. He came in his own dignity and he came in his own clothes. He came after living the life that was right to him. He brought himself and he brought his joy and he brought his satisfaction to heaven. And he came with no righteousness of God. He came with no adoration and no gratitude for the Son. He did not come as a humble, thankful guest who was unworthy to be in the palace, but he came self-approved and self-satisfied and self-righteous. Doesn't being at the king's wedding banquet as a welcome guest give us a picture of what it would mean to be rightly justified? How do you do it? You can't do it if the king doesn't do it for you. You can't be there if you're not rightly prepared by the king. Do you long for the the clothes that properly honors the king? Do you know the one who can make your sins as white as snow? Do you know the one who can prepare you and is preparing you for the son's wedding feast? Do you know the one who justifies the unjust? Salvation is for the lost. And the lost Come to the Savior, adulterers, gossips, man-pleasers, man-fearers. They come, they come dressed in our own dirty clothes of self-righteousness and we say, God, forgive me. God, forgive me. Forgive me. Forgive me. God, take me. Receive me by the blood sacrifice of the Son who died a sinner's death. Forgive me for my sins, my sins that are reason for his death. Forgive me for those sins. Forgive me, God. Don't go to the wedding feast. Ignoring the king's messengers. You know who all those messengers were who went to the men who owned the vineyard? You know who those messengers are? They're the prophets. The prophets went to Israel preaching over and over and over again, telling them to repent of your idolatries, repent of your worldliness, repent of your godlessness. Don't go to the wedding feast. Having ignored the king's messengers, arrive there prepared and humble and grateful, wearing the righteousness of the sun, Honoring the king by wearing the righteousness of the son, which is yours by faith. 
When we know our clothes are rags, how do we own the clothes of the Son? But by faith in the Son. We own the clothes by faith in Christ. By faith in the death of Christ that was our death. And by the resurrection of Christ, which is our hope of the acceptance of His offering. If you can see the cross as your own just end, you must see the cross as your just end because the cross is the right end. It is the right wrath for sinners. If you can see the cross as the just end of you for your sin against the righteousness of God, if you hate your sin, if you hate the thing that enslaves you and that makes you imperfect and that disqualifies you from any hope of eternal life, if you see yourself like the rich man on his way to hell and long to be seen when you open your eyes by a loving God with a smile, then you must have the righteousness of Christ. You must receive the righteousness of Christ that is by faith in the Christ who didn't die a sinner but he died with our sins on him. We seek his forgiveness. And then the one who died at the cross is your substitute. He is your Savior. He is your Lord who has justified you by faith in him. Don't go to the wedding banquet in your own clothes. When you and I understand the gospel, then we live by faith and we plan on meeting him in the righteousness of the one who died for you and was raised for you. What a glorious, glorious gospel it is. Let's just thank the Lord and get ready. Oh Lord, how we thank you and praise you for the preaching and teaching of the Lord Jesus. How I thank you, God, that this teaching so clearly makes it evident that we have one hope of, of being at peace with the King. Oh, Lord, oh, we thank you for the great Savior whose perfect righteousness became mine. Oh, thank you, Lord. Praise you. I praise the Son. I praise the Spirit. By the blood offering of Christ. Amen. Okay, let's stand and uh, sing our closing song together. Unless the computer is completely dead. It's going to be, uh, God be merciful, and the lyrics are going to be on the screen here for you.